Good evening and welcome to another episode of Slantcast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolf and I am Slant's publisher and editor. Thank you for choosing to share this time with us. Tonight, we're looking forward to our final book launch event of 2022 for the mystery of iniquity with author Daniel Taylor. But first, a brief word about Slant. On the last episode of Slantcast, I spoke briefly about one of the terms we use to describe Slant books. Our tagline is that Slant is a nonprofit indie literary press. So tonight I'll say a few words about what indie means to us. It happens that this is the theme of our annual appeal letter entitled The Cost of Independence. So I'll just quote a short passage from that. For a literary organization to be truly independent comes at a significant cost. The truth is that it is far easier and more financially safe to publish books that provide what readers already know and want, books that appeal to existing subcultures, political ideologies, religious cliques. And while there is nothing wrong with belonging to a tribe, the pressure exerted by tribalism pushes most publishers towards what is safe, known, and comforting. In such an environment, someone has to be willing to stand up for the unexpected, the mysterious, the revelatory, and the unique. Someone has to be willing to take risks. Otherwise, the superficiality of cliche predominates. Obviously, that's not a recipe for instant marketing success. But in the long run, the integrity of true independence the triumph of art over mediocrity, you might say, will win over the discerning audience, namely you guys, and have a leavening effect on the literary culture as a whole. And that's where you come in. Your book purchases and financial assistance say to the pressures of tribalism and the marketplace, no, you are not the last word. The world of the imagination is vaster and more compelling than that. So that is at least in part what we mean when we say that Slant is an indie press. Tonight we're here for another exciting book launch event, this time for Daniel Taylor's The Mystery of Iniquity, published this month by Slant. It's the fourth and final volume in the John Mote Mysteries. So this moment has a certain poignance to it, you might say. Slant has been honored to publish all four volumes, including Death Comes for the Deconstructionist, Do We Not Bleed, and Woe to the Scribes and Pharisees. If nothing else, Dan Taylor is a master at entitling his books, right? Before I introduce our reader, I'd just like to remind you that if you have questions for Dan, you can type them in the chat, time permitting, I will try to share as many of those as possible. I will also post a link to Slant's webpage for The Mystery of Iniquity, where you will find four options for purchasing a copy of the book. And now a few words of introduction of our featured author this evening. Daniel Taylor was born near San Diego in 1948 and was raised initially in various Southern California towns and cities. He spent five formative years as a boy in the Texas Panhandle, then returned to California for the rest of his boyhood through college. 
He lived in Atlanta during four years of graduate school and has lived in Minneapolis and St. Paul since 1974. Taylor went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara and picked up other degrees from Emory University in Atlanta. He began teaching at Northwestern College in Roseville, Minnesota in 1974, but soon began a long career at Bethel College and later University in Arden Hills, Minnesota that ended in 2010. He also taught briefly at Westmont College, his alma mater. Taylor and his wife, Jane, have led both student and adult tours to places such as England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Spain, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Australia, Guatemala, Brazil, and Cuba. They continue to lead such tours. Taylor published his first book in 1986, and his most recent novel, The Mystery of Iniquity, was published just this month. He worked as a stylist for the New Living Translation of the Bible from 1992 to 2002, while also teaching. And that gig lies, of course, at the back of the story chronicled in Woe to the Scribes and Pharisees. So it's a great honor and delight for me to ask Dan to do his reading this evening from the Mystery of Iniquity. Dan? Greg. <laughs> You want me to start reading? Yes, I do. You're okay. up. All right. Uh, let me, uh, for those who may have read any of the three previous novels, I'll give you a sense of where John and Judy um, are in this novel. The last novel, the third one, uh, ended four years prior. We find out at the end of that novel that Zilla, John's wife, uh, is pregnant with triplets. And so those triplets are now four years old, which gives John just a whole nother thing to try to deal with in his life. But also, I think, increases the sense that maybe his life has some meaning, which is something he's always trying to figure out. Um, Judy, who's John's wounded but wonderful sister, is now living with them. She refers to uh, helping raise our children, quote unquote. Um, so she's very invested, as you might expect, in these young lives. Uh, John is back in church uh, most Sundays. Um, it's one of my convictions or my observations that modern literature has uh, largely ignored religion um, and certainly church life and any sense of faith life. I mean, sometimes satirizes it or mocks it or makes a slight nod to it. But for the most part, it's just not, it's as though it doesn't exist, even though it's central to millions of people's lives, tens, hundreds of millions around the world. Uh, and so I've made a point in each of the four novels to have at least one church service. Um, and sometimes it confuses John and he's not sure what to make of them. But now he's actually back in church on most Sundays, although he's not quite sure why. And Zilla's okay with it because she gets to read the New York Times while John has the kids at church. Um, he's continuing his journey towards something that might uh, suggest wholeness. John is a very broken fellow. In the very first novel, he's hearing voices. The voices dissipate over the novels, and he's making... Uh, making small steps towards something like wholeness. And he continues that 
um, in, in this novel. Um, uh, surprisingly to him, he gets roped in almost immediately in this new church onto a committee, which uh, at the time of its first meeting is called the Missions Committee, but that of course upsets some of the members. And so the first order of business is to rename the committee and it becomes the Care and Compassion Committee, which seems to fit better our sense of what church is supposed to be about, at least some people's sense of what church is supposed to be about. And because of that, he gets chosen uh, to his surprise to be the liaison to an Iraqi family, immigrant family, and um, to be the go-between between that family and the church and that committee and all of that, which gets him involved in lots of complicated things. Some, in fact, eventually into dangerous things. Um, which leads him to add to his contemplations, uh, which are uh, innumerable, the question of evil and uh, what it is about the human experience, about human nature that gives us this proclivity for evil and what is evil. And so he, he asks a number of people in the novel what, they, what their take is on that. And he's trying to figure it out himself. And so that raises some of the thematic uh, aspects of a novel. So that's 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 where we are as the novel opens. I'm going to begin reading on the very first page, doesn't even have a number, um, which has a number of epigraphs. I'm a fan of epigraphs, um, as Greg will attest. And um, I think of I think of it as sort of my tip of my hat to to uh, 19th century Victorian novelists who loved epigraphs and sometimes gave us pages and pages of them. Melville, uh, I just, even in my nonfiction writing, I, I like to, I think it just sort of prompts my own thinking to start uh, a piece with an epigraph. Here's two of them for this whole novel. This is from Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then from Fleming Rutledge, who I'm a fan of, Evil is a vast excrescence, a monstrous contradiction that cannot be explained, but can only be denounced and resisted wherever it appears. So that title, which maybe I'll talk about later, The Mystery of Iniquity, is a, it comes from the King James, a King James phrase, but I think it is, evil is a mystery. We do not understand it. And we don't, you know, even the Apostle Paul says, I do that which I hate. You know, how, how wh what, what is it? A, there's a kind of a primordial bent in us. Um, and, you know, that kind of stuff appears. The novel opens, as every good novel should, in a torture chamber um, in Iraq in the past. So it is a flashback. Uh, although, of course, as the novel goes on, this past event will be seen to be an important um, to the present time characters and action of the novel. So it, this section starts again with a epigraph. This is from Dante's Inferno. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And I'll just read the first paragraph only. Darkness. Eyes adjust slowly, but ears hear what no one wants ever to hear. Muffled screams, groans, 
the thudding of metal pipes sounding dully against flesh. The narrow corridor is long, dimming into black. Cold cement walls coated with wet, likely seeping water, but your mind insists it is blood. Someone behind you has a fistful of your hair and is pushing you forward, forcing your chin into your chest. You want to say you are innocent, but no one, by definition, is innocent in this mausoleum of all hope. All are guilty. All will suffer. So that's the cheery opening to the novel, and it's only a page, so don't worry that it, you know, it's going to violate your sensibilities page after page. And then it's followed in the second, uh, in the first full chapter, by a bland domestic scene of John among his children uh, um, and reading the morning paper, which he calls his morning cup of evil, because the paper uh, digests all the evil of the world and feeds it to you by the spoonful every morning. And so we go from one extreme to the other. And what, you know, basically the progression of the novel, even the plot of the novel is to build, bring those two worlds together. John's bland suburban world and this world of unspeakable evil or and torture and that kind of thing. And for John to become aware of his own participation in evil himself, which I think is something that Americans, or maybe for the first time in the last, let's say in my lifetime, Americans are coming to the awareness that evil isn't just something that happens abroad, happens over there, and every so often we go fix it and come back and we're heroes and we pat ourselves on the back, but that evil is universal in the human experience. And uh, too often it originates with us not just with other people. So that's something, again, that John is wrestling with, trying to come to understand um, as best he can. Um, so he's back in church, as I said. Um, I'll read a little bit of how he picked his church. John has not been in church since he was a teen, I mean, not in a regular basis since he was a teenager living with Uncle Lester. And if you've read the first novel, especially, you know, Uncle Lester's a unpleasant fellow. And so John's fleeing of the church, which happens very early is I think widely, you know, clearly understandable. So this church, what kind of church is it? Well, I chose it with some care. My basic yardstick, not too much. Not too much of this, not too much of that, not too up tight, not too loosey-goosey, not too ironclad orthodoxy, not too finger-to-the-wind heterodoxy, not too much savior talk, not too much fear of the C word, theological, not medical, not too white, not too, I hesitate to admit it, self-consciously and back-pattingly diverse, not too intellectual, not too sentimental, not too hot gospel, not too cool do-goodism, not too big where nobody knows you exist, not too small where folks know more about you than your mother does. You get the idea. And of course, not all these criteria were fully conscious nor fully met. What is? Most of them only occurred to me after I had settled on my church, found, if I'm honest, by the most unselective of ways, it was the closest church to where we live. So that that's some of uh, John's early thinking about church. 
and going to church. Um, he gets on the committee, as I indicated. They ask him to make contact with the Ahmads, which is the family name of the Iraqi family. And John, who is not, who is a bit timorous about life always, is more than a little bit nervous about approaching the home of uh, this family. And so I'll read a little bit about that. Uh, I have an epigraph for this chapter that's from Thoreau, Thoreau's Walden. If I knew for certain that a man was coming to my house with a conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life, which of course is John approaching this, this house trying to do good as a member of the Care and Compassion Committee. Uh, so he's quoting Tabitha, who's a committee member, who told him you can do most of it by email, you know, when he protested this assignment. Sure, you can do most of it by email, Tabitha, Tabitha says. Those Muslim refugees, big time emailers. I'll just use a lot of Mohammed emojis that must be floating around the internet. Or maybe not, asked that Danish fellow. No, the first contact at least will have to be face to face. Life has put me in surprising places more than once, and now I have to add standing at the Ahmad family door to the list. They're living in a small powder blue house on the corner of Blair and Victoria. Um, authors have this thing for sometimes wanting to get the details right. So I actually drove around and found a house that the Ahmads live in and also one that, the, uh, that John and and the moats live in and also a church nearby. So if you want to go to Blair and Victoria, you'll find this little blue house. Opening the gate of the chain link fence, I feel like a door-to-door -door salesman hawking encyclopedias, a product as dead as the slide rule, and some think the gospel. The greater Minnesota whatever has arranged for me to make an initial visit with the family who knows I'm coming. Perhaps they dread the encounter as much as I do, maybe more. I imagine a small child answering the door. Mommy, the Kaffir from the infidel church is here. Should I invite him in or cut off his head? I'm sorry about that. It's the worst kind of stereotyping, totally unfair and out of bounds. Such uninvited thoughts are another reason why I'm the worst person for this job. But this is what I'm feeling. And the same folks who tell us that thinking such things is evil also tell us in other contexts that we must not suppress what we feel. In actuality, after an uncomfortably long time following my ringing the doorbell, I am greeted not by a small child, but by a very dignified looking man dressed in black with a severe gaze that drills holes through my forehead. He is maybe in his late forties, not tall, but strong looking. My first instinct is to flee, but that would require movement. And my body has shut down all communication with my brain. Fortunately, Mr. Ahmad is fully functional and offers me his hand. Hello, Mr. Ahmad. I am Malik Ahmad. We are expecting you. Thank you for coming. The other Ahmads composing the we are standing in a line about 10 feet behind him. One wife, one son, one daughter. They're all dressed as though going to a banquet or perhaps a funeral. The mother smiles shyly, but the children are noncommittal. 
This is my wife, Sabine. This is my son, Mustafa. This is my daughter, Layla. We welcome you to our home. No one steps forward for a handshake, so I introduce myself from a safe distance. I'm happy to meet you all. My name is John Moat. Please call me John. I want to say, we Americans are sort of informal, you know, but that would be stating the obvious. The whole world knows that Americans abroad are wearyingly friendly when we aren't dropping bombs on your head. Sabine smiles even more broadly and ignores my naming directive. Thank you, Mr. Moat, for honoring us with a visit to our home. She gestures toward the only stuffed chair in the living room. Please be seated. The children move to the sofa in unison as though previously drilled. Mr. Ahmad remains standing. Sabine continues. It would be my pleasure to serve you some tea and mamul. What is mamul? Not an animal organ, I hope. That sounds good. Thank you very much. Sabine, Sabine departs for the kitchen and Mr. Ahmad sits down in a wooden chair next to the sofa. The family stares at me as though I am a curious object that has dropped from the sky. Interesting, but potentially dangerous. I try to capture a mental picture of each of them because I know Zilla, it's his wife, is going to want details of the visit and will not accept unhelpful generalities. A man, his wife, two children. Mustafa looks to be about 15. He is a handsome boy with thick black hair, a delicate face and erect posture. He has already learned to project the dignified reserve of his father. Though I expect it melts away quickly with friends. Of course, in Minnesota, he likely has no friends. Layla, a couple of years younger, will be a beauty. Even as an adolescent, she commands the attention that goes with beauty. May she also learn to be kind. Sabine re-enters with the tea. Mamoul turns out to be a sort of cookie stuffed with dates. I'm relieved. I feel the need to get on with the business at hand, the nature of which I'm not completely sure. Our church has been asked to play a role in helping you to, uh, to make, uh, I'm starting to sound like Judy, a transition to your new life here in America. No one says a word. Mr. Ahmad is staring at me without expression. We are happy to help you in any way we can. Mr. Ahmad speaks with a flat line cadence of a man accustomed to being listened to and obeyed. We will not be coming to your church. I startle a bit. No, no, of course not. We do not expect you to come to our church. Not at all. We just want you to be a, we just want to be a, a, a resource, you might say. The agency that arranged this, they did not tell me that you would be from a church. They said a local organization. They did not say a church. Great. And they didn't tell me that they weren't telling him. I try thinking fast, not my forte. Perhaps I can point out to him how frequently churches in America have very little to do with religion, per se more like the YMCA than like the Vatican. Instead, I suggest that our interests are entirely practical. We would simply like, simply like to help with things like finding jobs, being a liaison with school authorities, perhaps accompanying you to a cultural event, anything that would make the transition to our community easier for you. And we are also prepared to be of assistance financially should that be needed. Mr. Ahmad stiffens he likely is not used to help needing help and especially does not enjoy being offered it in front of his wife and children. We thank you. Our needs are few. I will, as you say, need employment. My wife will not. She will be at home as is proper. The children will be going to Al Huda Academy if we can arrange transportation. Perhaps that is something you can help us with. Mustafa is interested in American sports. Perhaps if you go to these events, he can sometimes join you. It's not something I am inclined to myself. I embrace this slight 
opening warmly. Yes, I understand perfectly. We can definitely look into each of these things, and I would be glad to take Mustafa to a Twins baseball game or perhaps a gopher football or basketball game. Mr. Ahmad looks puzzled. What is a gopher? It is a small animal, is it not? Like a rat. Well, yes, but it is also the mascot of the local university. A person dresses up in a costume and encourages people to cheer for the team. Mustafa laughs. A man in a rat uniform leading cheers. This is maybe not so great a country as people say. Mr. Ahmad is not amused. Silence, Mustafa. Show respect. This country is the only reason you are still alive. Mustafa stiffens and stares straight ahead. Sabine quickly changes the subject. Tell us, please, Mr. Mode, about Minnesota winters. For maybe the first time in my life, I'm eager to talk about it when we fail to recognize our own status as God's creatures by declaring ourselves autonomous. We reenact Satan's sin and Satan's fall and have the naive perversity to call it freedom. The lust for autonomy is evil's fondest dream. It's the squeak of the mouse impersonating the roar of the lion. The squeak of no one can tell me what to do when we ought to be pleading to the creator, please tell me what to do. Make yourself the source of wisdom. And like the lawyer who represents himself in court when accused, you have a fool for a client. Sprung would be deeply offended. That's a reference back to the previous novel. The offspring of the insistence on autonomy is the failure to value rightly. We love wrongly in both object and degree. We love both things that do not deserve our love and fail to love what does and who. This is what it means to be fallen. We do not value each other rightly from the womb to the grave. And as a result, we live diminished lives. The same is true with the valuing of God and God's creation. I'm thinking this might be a place for a rest stop, but the good sister keeps the big rig of scholastic theology barreling down the highway. God's great love led him to create. Satan's great hate, hatred underlies his twisted love of decreating, of shredding, dismembering, pulling down, polluting, infecting, putrefying, all the many dissolution words. Satan celebrates boys breaking windows, taunting on the playground, and similar petty cruelties, just as he celebrates plague and Auschwitz and lynchings. We call such things wrong, but wrong is just a soft name for evil in its most common forms. There is no qualitative difference. The one who passes on the small bit of harmful gossip is the cousin of the neighbor who informed on Anne Frank's family and sent them to the concentration camp. All such acts, large and small, are obscene gestures directed at the creator. Satan invites us to destroy, belittle, oppress, and devalue. God invites us to create, build up, protect, and forgive. And we choose every moment of every day which invitation to accept. Well, Sister Bridget may be in a wheelchair, but she hasn't put on a velvet glove on her iron fist. You have firsthand experience with evil, John, child and man. This is not a new thing in the world. Satan is a terrorist of hate. God is a terrorist of love. The imperatives of love blow up our comfortable, autonomous lives every bit as much as the habits of hate. They both lead to death. The difference is that love leads to death to selfishness, while hate leads to eternal death, to the kingdom of death. 
God loves you, John, much more than you love yourself. Accept it and return it. I'm not claiming that the choice is easy. There are pleasures attached to accepting Satan's invitation. He's a master salesman. There are small satisfactions in petty sin. There is a thrill in evil. Temporary to be sure, but real. When Paris fell to the Nazi panzers, Hitler danced a little jig. My Baptist Sunday school teachers were not adverse to invoking Satan, but they never put it in quite the cosmic context that Sister B is describing. Folks laugh at the idea of Satan, or evil for that matter, merely names for things we don't like, they say, used to demonize our enemies or the much lamented other. We want, you want to talk about the other? The Bible's word is the stranger, and it warned the nation of Israel to treat the stranger right because they had once been strangers in Egypt, and they became so again. Pastor Thomas said the same back in his office, and the imam brought up the idea, it must be a common thing among, theme among religious folks. How we treat the immigrant, the sexually confused, the poor, the ethnic minority, the waiting to be born, the devalued ones, is indeed a measure of our capacity for acting on the goodness God made possible. We treat them badly to our own harm as well as theirs, as we treated Jesus, the Messiah, the ultimate other, not just from another country or another group than ours, but from another reality, sent to save us, executed for the offer, giving Satan, so he thought, the ultimate revenge, but instead involving Satan in God's ultimate victory. It's Satan's greatest agony that all his evil worked in service of the good. I look at Judy. She nods at the mention of Jesus, her BFF. Judy, an other if ever there was one, and therefore at risk from the moment of conception. Judy, JP, Benita, and the rest taught me that I was, like them, a special. Now I have to understand that I'm also a stranger, that we're all strangers, all of us looking to get home. Okay, I think I'll stop there. Um, Yeah, that's that's enough reading for me, I think. Wonderful, Dan. Thanks so much. How does it feel to be coming to the end of the of the of the sequence of books? Well, it, there's a certain sense of completion, but also uh, a certain sense of uh, a certain lament. But uh, we when we discussed this before, I pointed out that I have left gaps between these novels. And uh, it's not impossible that when, after I get the Nobel Prize that I might go back and fill in one of those gaps um, with another novel in the series. I've also thought about doing a novel of Judy as uh, a young girl um, and John as brother and sister and see what might come out of that. So it's not impossible that we'll see these guys again. So we can call it the concluding novel, but not necessarily the final novel. Yes, I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis didn't write his novels in the order in which we publish them today. So I think he probably did some backfill here and there. <laughs> I'm just curious to go all the way back to the beginning because, uh, you know, what the origin of the series was. I mean, I can I can imagine at least two strong sources for you. I mean, 
One is your own identity as a literary scholar. Um, John is a, a failed grad student, but somebody who's embraced the, you know, the pursuit of, of, of meaning through literature. And so in some ways he gets to be a kind of inquirer throughout the, the series. But then of course, there's also this experience of, of Judy and this, what, what you call the specials in the, in the course of the sequence of novels that I know came from your uh, and your wife's uh, being part of a uh, group home in your younger years. Were those like the two different sources, the sort of rivers that flowed in to create the sequence? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I started the first novel with John uh, with the intention of honoring a great friend of mine who died in his 20s of cancer just shortly after becoming a medical doctor. And he had the melodious name of John Dingledine, which uh, we, uh, we as friends always delighted in uh, using his full name. <laughs> but what I found, and I, so I thought, okay, I'm going to put John just, you know, in situations and see what happens. But he quickly, John Moat quickly developed in ways that John Dingledine would not have. And so I left that behind. I think, you know, um, I've run into lots, lots of John Moats in my life, partly because I've written this nonfiction about faith and doubt and struggle and trying to put life together. And obviously, to a certain extent, partly because that's what I've done throughout my life to a certain, you know, to varying degrees. Um, so, uh, and working with students, especially, and trying to, you know, once I kind of got some stability in my own life to try to help other people who I see, at, you know, at similar stages, and especially with students, led me to write The Myth of Certainty, which was a, my first book, and that was a nonfiction book about faith and doubt and all those kinds of things. So there's really a kind of easy commerce between my fiction and my nonfiction, I think. Um, and uh, a lot of the fiction uh, grows out both of the nonfiction and also just my own mind and how it works. I want to stick with the, the character of Judy for a minute because she's such a, I don't know, a kind of touchstone uh, for John, obviously, uh, throughout the sequence of books. Um, and, you know, when I first read your, your manuscript way back um, that you shared with me of a draft of the first book, I was really struck immediately because, I mean, it's, it's a kind of person who could easily be treated with sentimentality or condescension or, I don't know, just falseness of some kind. Um, and yet I was immediately struck with the kind of the realism, uh, the, the kind of just full presence that this human being had. And I know that obviously that that's corroborated for you by people that you met. I, I understand that she's kind of a composite character, but did you, did you struggle with that? I mean, I guess she's a character that you could if you were super skeptical, you'd say she's too good to be true, but. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, let me, uh, there's a lot to say about that. Um, first, as a, you know, a fiction writer, I think 
most fiction writers, and I would say most literary writers, are afraid of two things. One is didacticism and the other is sentimentality. And both of them uh, are powerful uh, temptations, especially I would say for Christian writers. Um, and as you say, that uh, the Judies of the world uh, lend themselves to being treated that way. So I was very careful. I tried to be careful, but I still worry that, you know, am I, is this too didactic or is this bordering on sentimental? Um, but Judy actually is not a composite. Uh, she, Judy is straight Judy. There, there is one of the specials who is a composite, but the others are just straight themselves. And uh, any condescension I had, which I probably did have when I first we first started working with them, and we worked with a group home for mentally challenged adults, they're all adults, uh, for three years in, when we were in our 20s, back in the 70s, was erased by my growing admiration for them and making a life for themselves, you know, despite tremendous odds. And Judy, with this innocent, she's both wise and innocent. I, I think of Judy as sort of an incarnate wisdom. Um, she doesn't have any intellectual answers for John. And John is always searching for intellectual answers. He reads too many books, his wife tells him. Uh, and he reads, you know, brain science and all kinds of stuff, trying to figure things out. And Judy is just this, a living incarnated example of acceptance, both self-acceptance and acceptance of others and, and responding lovingly to the world, but not in a kind of Mother Teresa, let me help you all, you know, kind of love, but just, um, she's just rightly related to the world. And, um, and so, in some ways, this whole series is a way of honoring those people that I lived with who taught taught Jane and I so much about life and 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 taught us that we're all broken. You know, John is very broken. Uh, and he's always trying to put himself together, but he has to slowly learn that uh, he can't lift himself by his bootstraps. And Judy is the prime example of that. And occasionally she articulates it to him and calls him a silly boy for not understanding. Um, and he, his understanding grows, I would say, in book four. Yeah. Well, our mutual friend, Paul Willis, has a question. And uh, so he's going to unmute himself and ask it directly. Hey, Dan, thanks for your reading. <clears throat> um, you know, your title sent me some different directions, the mystery of iniquity. And it made me think how sometimes we create this mystique around evil as if it's something endlessly fascinating or cannot possibly understood. And, you know, often that attaches to, uh, you know, figures, you know, like Putin in, in the present. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, or, you know, Hitler in the past or in literature, the figure of Satan in Paradise Lost. And, yeah. and Lewis tries to explode that uh, by saying that, you know, in the poem, Satan is, is just pure banality, really. Um, but I don't know, I don't, you know, it was may, maybe with the interchange with the nun, uh, you, you know, you came the closest to exploring those sorts of things. But 
Um, I, you know, it, 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 we have po politicians posturing and attracting attention to themselves, and then we endlessly want to dissect it, like, oh, what's beneath this? And then you think, well, it's pretty obvious, actually, but, but I, I, so are, you know, so when you throw up that title, are you surprised that my mind went in that directions? And what, oh. what do you do to assuage that? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, who's the famous uh, mid 20th century woman intellectual who talked about the banality of evil? You talk about Lewis, but who's, there's a woman who's attached to that. <laughs> Hannah Arendt. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so, um, the evil that is in the plot of the novel is pretty dramatic and uh, even shocking. Um, and we have to realize that evil actually does destroy things and destroys people. So it, is, it isn't something to treat lightly. On the other hand, John has to come to the awareness of uh, his own participation. And his own participation is more trivial. Um, and it includes things like a will, an unwillingness to commit uh, to the to take any the risk of of uh, embracing meaning, you know, because it's, you know, what if you can't prove it and all that kind of stuff. So the the novel um, tries to tries to treat evil seriously and realistically on the other hand there's also the novel introduces an even bigger mystery than iniquity and that's the mystery of grace we don't really understand evil but we also don't understand grace we don't understand the good and hollywood when it tries to depict evil often gives us cartoons and and shock evil you know a little sort of something scary jumping out at you and that kind of stuff which shows a real lack of understanding of the true uh insidiousness of evil and it also doesn't really understand the good it usually leans towards sentimentality and happy endings and and the predictable good guys and bad guys so the novel tries to tries to be realistic about good and evil without offering any you know any didactic answers to the mystery other than um perhaps there there is an offer out there of grace that john has to consider um, um and the novel you know the not obviously i'm not going to tell you the ending but uh i would say read the novel and decide whether to what extent you think John has embraced uh, that response. It's certainly modeled by Judy, but yeah. You know. No, I'm not surprised, Paul, because I know you're a contrarian. <laughs> well, I, I think as you were talking about Judy, I think she is such a uh, exemplum of the, you know, the mystery of what's good. And it's, that's a real strength of, in I think all of your books, and I look forward to reading about her again in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, I'm asking just as a friend, not as a publisher, if you're working on anything new, have you got, or are you taking a little bit of a break in your no, no break. book writing life? 
no breaks. Uh, I'm actually working on a novel uh, set during the siege of Leningrad and uh, with a main character being a docent from the Hermitage. And I guess I come to think about it, it just now occurred to me, I'm back to the problem of evil <laughs> in, that, in that context uh, and trying to figure out. So early stages. Beautiful. Well, we will look forward to hearing about your progress with that. Um, Dan, thank you so much for joining us this evening, for sharing with, from the book. As I said earlier, I still have a vivid memory of reading the draft of the first book many, many years ago and being compelled not only by John's voice, wounded, curious, self-doubting, yet always searching, but also, of course, the unforgettable character of Judy, who I'm very happy to say has taken up residence in my own mind. Uh, frequently, I hear the phrase silly boy, which for which <laughs> something for which I will be forever grateful to you. Well, let me say this. I, my memory is that when you first read it, uh, that it was your wife who pointed out, I mean, I think you quoted your wife and saying, you know, the real interesting character in this mess of a manuscript is Judy which was kind of a revelation to me. And so with, uh, with your direction, we whittled away a lot of excess and focused on John and Judy and she was off and running. So I credit your family for helping to discover Judy. Yes, well, as has been the case for the last 40 years, the real per literary perspicuity in the family comes from Suzanne M. Wolfe and uh, for which we have both reason to rejoice. Yes, exactly. The Mystery of Iniquity is available for purchase in cloth-bound paperback and ebook editions through all the major online retailers. If you go to the book's webpage at slantbooks.org, which I've placed in the chat, you can find links to several of those outlets, including IndieBound and bookshop.org, two good alternatives to the big guys. Early in the new year, we'll post information about our next podcast. Slant actually has three books coming out in February. So let me just give you a little teaser for one of them. Cry of the Heart on the Meaning of Suffering by the late Lorenzo Albacete, which of course harmonizes well with our topic this evening. The experience of suffering has posed a profound existential challenge to human hearts and minds throughout history but it has become especially problematic in our time. When with our good intentions and technological prowess, we seek to relieve the suffering of our patients at any cost, while in the end reducing the fullness of their personhood. What we have failed to grasp is that the one who suffers yearns not only for relief from pain, but a response to the deep-seated questions that suffering provokes. Cry of the Heart is the late Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete's incisive and heartfelt look at what the experience of suffering reveals to each of us. He draws upon insights from literary figures such as Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and Elie Wiesel, adds the wisdom of Saints John Paul II and Padre Piro, and engages our own everyday human experience. Albacete challenges caretakers and friends to co-suffer with those in distress by not only treating their mental and physical symptoms but participating in their questions in a relationship directed to the redemptive love 
of the mystery who makes us. In addition to a forward by Albacete's close friend, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Cry of the Heart also includes a newly researched biographical essay about the author that provides surprising insights into the man and his work. We'll be posting book pages for Cry of the Heart and the other two February releases on the Slant website soon, so stay tuned. Therefore, in conclusion, let me just say again, the mystery of iniquity is available now. And while you're at it, maybe order whichever of the first three books you don't have so you have a complete set. Tonight's event has been recorded and will soon be available on the Slant book page, our YouTube channel, and of course, through Slantcast. You can now subscribe to Slantcast for all the major podcast outlets, including Spotify, Apple, Audible, SoundCloud, and many others. As I mentioned at the outset, Slant has just put out our annual appeal letter. So we'd like to remind you that your tax-deductible donations make possible bold and innovative, and yes, challenging books like The Mystery of Iniquity possible. To support our work, just go to slantbooks.org and click on Donate. Finally, remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. So